Hello and welcome back to Reason for Hope. I am super excited today to share with you our show. We are going to stretch your brain today and perhaps even challenge your perspective. We're going to ask you to think, pause, and reflect. Wait, wait a minute. Are you driving? Well, slow down. You're going to get distracted. Dr. David Heideck and I are going to discuss how our bodies reveal who we are. Also, I've got someone you got to meet. Someone who drew me into a deeper understanding of our faith. I personally believe he is a modern-day doctor of the church. Dr. Peter Kraith is with us today. That is so cool. So if you just found us today and know very little about Array of Hope, we are a nonprofit lay apostolate serving the church. We release daily reflections, lots of videos on the faith, the saints, and music, lots of music. We have hundreds of videos on our YouTube page. By the way, all the music on this podcast is original music produced by Array of Hope. So you can check us out on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite music outlet. Our social media handles are Array of Hope on Facebook, Array of Hope Show on Twitter and Instagram. And by the way, you got to subscribe to this podcast so you get a reminder every time we're going to be releasing a podcast. And you might notice that our theme here is hope. Hope. Array of hope. Reason for hope. Everything's hope. And there's so many reasons to have hope. And today we're going to share with you so you can better understand how our bodies reveal the hope we long for. So hang tight and here we go. Here's a little something that we recorded pre-pandemic. It's kind of cool and interesting. Check it out. Man in the street, you never know who we're gonna meet. Man in the street, a ray of hope. Man in the street. So here I am at Boston College uh, in Massachusetts. This is a stunning college if you've ever been up here. It's just beautiful. And I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna just talk to some students and see what they think about their Catholic faith. What religion are you? Greek Orthodox. Do you go to church here on campus? Uh, I do not. How about yourself? I don't practice religion. Yeah, I mean, I believe in God, just, you know, I don't really like waking up early on Sundays. So what about if they made church like around 5 o'clock? Even then, it's like, you know, you get out of class like 3 or 4, do homework, to eat, I gotta eat, so. You gotta like, eat. I don't really have to drive. It's like, I guess it won't really matter what time it is. The truth comes out. Well, there's a guy that uh, only will go to church if it happens to be at a time that he eats. It's a Catholic university. You go to church here at Boston College? I don't always go to like Catholic masses. Sometimes I go to like a Baptist, Presbyterian, or Protestant as well. What religion are you? Oh, I'm Seventh-day Adventist. Oh, wow. Cool. And what is that exactly? It's a Christian denomination. And do you go to church? I would go every Saturday when I'm in Jamaica with my family. I have been to church here, and it's very similar, but like there's... I feel like it's more lively. More lively than the Catholic Church? Yeah. <laughs> you just gotta find lively Catholic churches, right? Hey, how you doing? Can I talk to you guys? I'm conducting a survey for a podcast. Okay, sure. What are you laughing at? Is it my jacket? No, no, no. <laughs> it's just a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day here in Boston. Do you believe in God? Questionable. Um, I'm actually taking a class. It's called, Does God Exist? How about you guys? Are you up to talking or you, you guys look like you're taking a nap? I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> are you guys Catholic? I'm not. I was raised Catholic. Okay, do you guys believe in God? Debatable. Debatable. What religion are you? 
Undetermined. I would say agnostic. I was raised Catholic. Once baptized Catholic, always Catholic. Did you know that? I'm more closer to an atheist. You were also baptized Catholic, but you're not practicing. Tell me why you're not practicing. Okay. Tough question? Very tough. I disagree with the idea of religion. I think everyone should come up with their own moral values, not take it from some kind of book that's been written and revised throughout the ages. Great, and tell me a little bit, you said you're a Episcopalian? Um, well, so we used to be in the Catholic Church, but there's a lot of issues with our church, so we kind of left and changed. Like 500 years ago? So I am amazed at the fact that a lot of these students are extremely unrooted in their faith, at least the ones that are Catholic are really not Catholic in the sense that they're very open-ended. They're not really rooted in any kind of foundational sense of Catholicism. It's scary in the sense that I think all of them felt that the church is not something that they can relate to. It's really interesting that here we are at a Catholic university uh, with beautiful churches in them and no one goes to church. So I don't know if that is a uh, portrayal of the future as to what is to come, or it's an indicator for us to work even harder on our youth and our kids to really give them a sense that uh, you know God is real and that God is alive and not dead in our culture. Ray of Hope's man in shape. Oh, yeah. Do you know? Do you know? How much he loves you so? Do you know? Do you know? How much he loves you so? Okay, so here we are with Dr. David Heideck. I always love talking to you, Dave. Um, today's subject is The Body Reveals Man, and that comes from St. John Paul's uh, Theology of the Body. Now, this is a kind of difficult thing to understand. As a matter of fact, at our last podcast, I even commented and said, you know, the upcoming episode is The Body Reveals Man. What does that mean? I said, I don't know. We're going <laughs> to find out. So we're going to find that out right now. So, Dave, what does it exactly mean, The Body Reveals Man? Many people think that, like, Christianity teaches that the person is really their soul, and that that's the real me, you know. Like, every, sometimes you'll hear people even just say that, you know, they're, they're such a good soul, you know, like, as if that's the only thing that they are. And this is a key point. When God creates human beings in his image and likeness, he made us both spirit and matter. In Genesis chapter 2, when, when God creates Adam from the the clay or dust of the ground, and then he breathes into Adam the breath of life, right? The word breath in the original Hebrew, ruach, is the same word for spirit. The man is now no longer just a lump of clay. He's animated by this spiritual component of himself, the soul. So we are both body and soul. We're not more one than the other. We're not more body than soul. We're not more soul than body. We are completely one person that is a, a composite being of body and soul, a matter and form, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say. But we shouldn't think of it as if we have a body and our soul is on the inside as if it's trapped in the body. That would be the belief of Platonic philosophy or some Eastern religion, perhaps, but it's not Christianity. We believe that the soul and the body are unified, that, in a sense, they permeate one another, that the body is the visible expression of the soul made in the image of God. 
I think what you're saying is that it, it's like our body's like a sacrament, right? It makes visible what is invisible. Absolutely right. And uh, actually, it's interesting that you say that because John Paul II, in the Theology of the Body, says this very, very clearly. He says, the body, and it alone, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It was created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the invisible mystery hidden in God from time immemorial, and thus be a sign of it. Hmm. So, so very truly, the the body is a sacrament, and it's a sacrament in kind of two ways. Well, one, it the body makes visible the invisible reality of my personhood. So the body reveals man effectively means that what you can't see, which is my personhood, which is you know tied up with my spiritual soul, is made visible in and through the body. Hmm. Um, and then it's a sacrament in, a, in another kind of way, and that is since I am created in the image and likeness of God and the way in which you come to see the person who is created in the image and likeness of God is my body— the, the body is also revealing God in the world. God is made visible in the world in and through the sign of the body, the visible sign of the human body. Hmm. I know it seems like people have the wrong idea about Christianity, uh, like it is against the body or it sees the body as something bad. I mean, we always hear about the sins of the flesh and how the flesh is opposed to the spirit, right? Right. Yeah, and I, and I think that this is a little bit of a confusion about the word flesh and even some translations of the word flesh from the Greek into English because you get the idea that it's, it's our actual body that is the problem, right? But, but flesh, it really refers to all that is fallen in man. It's interesting. If you looked at, you know, the works of the flesh in Paul's letter to the Galatians, you'll see things that have little to do with the body there, like pride, Mm. You know, like that's a spiritual thing, right. but it's a work of the flesh, right? Because it's referring to to um, what has fallen in us, or sometimes it refers to our lower nature. All right, so like in this sense, our lower nature is supposed to be raised up through our spiritual nature. So either we're giving in to our lower nature, that is, we're like acting as animals act, or we're, we're giving into some distortion or disorder of our natural capacities. So when the spirit is opposed to the flesh, it's really like the, the way in which God calls us to live and the way in which our natural capacities are supposed to be ennobled, right, is supposed to be what we're about. We're supposed to live life according to the spirit. Mm. But that doesn't mean like an out-of-body life. That means a life where the body is being directed by our spirit that has been ennobled and empowered by grace. Hmm. Even like the desires of the body are now ordered properly by grace. And when they are, that's no longer the works of the flesh. Hmm. So what are some of the consequences of getting the body wrong? If we do not see the body as the way God created it, and that is to be good, or we don't understand that our bodies are us, that has to have consequences as how we live, right? Yeah. I mean, I think this is true. You brought up just before, and I was kind of responding to it. You can have the idea of the body bad so that anything that the body desires is bad. And therefore, for example, sex is bad or sexual desire is bad or, you know, anytime I like a good meal, somehow I'm automatically being gluttonous. You know, like there can be this, this sense of all things being bad, and that can cause people a lot of anxiety. You know, like um, sometimes when I'm teaching, even about lust in the heart, I have to help 
people distinguish between a sexual attraction and what lust is. But on the other hand, we can have a wrong attitude about the body in a different sort of way. For example, let's just take the abortion issue. People who advocate for abortion will often say that the embryo or fetus isn't a person because it doesn't have consciousness or self-consciousness. But effectively, what they're trying to do is separate the person from the body. And that makes the unborn child just a blob of tissue, a mass of cells to them that then you can just simply remove. And this is what they sell as an argument to the culture and even to women who are seeking abortion. This is the lie that these women are told. Well, but let's look at the other side of life, at issues such as euthanasia and assisted suicide. People who uh, promote these things really try to make a distinction between the person and their body such that if the body is no longer useful or is a burden, you should simply shed it off because, you know, you need to be in a way almost set free from that burden that the body is to you. And this is also a problem because what it does is separate the person from his or her body. So this is also the case with how now even gender is considered in our culture. I mean, people try to separate gender from the body. So our masculinity and femininity somehow has nothing to do with what our bodies are. Even, even sexual ethics, you can have this, where two people somehow think they can give their bodies to each other sexually as long as everybody agrees, and they're not really giving themselves to each other. You know, I think that the problem with that is, is that, you know, you reduce sex to just an act of the body as if that's separate from a person who is united with that body as one person, right? If our bodies are us, that means what we do with our body, we do. The way I look at somebody's body is the way I look at them. The way I treat someone's body is how I treat them. If I give my body to someone, I am giving me. And so you get people using one another as objects because they've reduced the body to an object, to a thing. We thingify people all the time. Think about pornography. That's just thingifying the body where you don't even see. Do people even care about that that's, those are people on their screen made in the image and likeness of God? I think there's a ton of consequences of separating out the person from his or her body. Well, this is kind of like a, I might be taking a left turn here on you, Dave. But, <laughs> you know, the body is very important to God. He promises us that we're going to have our own resurrection, right? right? And our bodies and our souls will unite at the end of time. So it makes sense, right? Well, that, it makes total sense. But the thing that I find amazing, Mario, is that very few people really have grasped this whole idea of the resurrection of the body. To me, it's like, it's the, it's the exclamation point. It's like, it's the punchline. It's like the thing that makes life worth living is the fact that there's the resurrection of the body. And yet, if you ask a lot of Catholics, they don't know that we're supposed to rise from the dead. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. If the body weren't a good thing, he wouldn't have taken his body in this new glorified state. You know, he would have gotten rid of it as fast as he could have if it weren't good. But not only does he rise from the dead, he's the first one to rise. Mm. And that that we're all going to rise from the dead. And so, yeah, so that God's plan for us with our bodies is to have it forever. 
Of course, it's going to be a different kind of body than we experience our bodies now, but nonetheless, it's going to be related to it. It's going to be, in a sense, the same body, but glorified, spiritualized, perfected. Um, and and that's going to be amazing. I mean, I think that that's a great point that you bring up. And I think it's one that, that we don't talk about enough. Um, because I always like to add, and that if we're going to have a body, that means that we're going to be somewhere and doing something with it. So that means like that, that heaven is not just about, you know, like some spirits floating around, like, you know, doing nothing. So I always wondered what that's going to be like. You know, are we going to be out there playing baseball together, Dave? Or? I think so. I'm hoping. <laughs> like, well, I got to work on my pitching arm then. <laughs> that's great. So, Dave, this was so revealing and so exciting. I mean, this is kind of a deep theological subject, you know. Uh, but you, I think you laid it out really well. And um, essentially is that, you know, the soul, the body, it, it's really one in a sense. It's part of the, our body and our DNA are meshed with our soul. And it's just so beautiful how God created it. And uh, just love that. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome. So today's mystery caller is going to be David Carollo. Now, he is the executive director of the Blue Army Shrine in Washington, New Jersey. Um, we became friends several years ago when we were doing Fatima Gems here, and he has the only recognized shrine by the Vatican uh, on the apparitions of Fatima right in New Jersey. Um, it, it's an amazing complex, and he's an amazing man. So uh, let me give him a shout and see if he would be willing to be surprised on this week's podcast surprise phone guest. Yeah. I'm getting a little excited and ahead of myself. Mario, how are you? Hey, Dave, how are you? Good, good. Good. It's always it's always funny now. There's no surprise element when we have caller ID, right? I wanted to surprise you. And I can't do that. Oh, well, I'll just pretend I don't know who it is. <laughs> so listen, where are you? Uh, Munich, Germany. We're, we're in Munich right now. Oh my gosh. You're like a traveling, you're like a traveling <laughs> man. It's incredible. You never know where you're going to be. I know. Let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm actually recording a podcast and I'm recording our conversation right now because I want you to be on the podcast. Is this okay? Do I have your approval? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So that's awesome. So now I haven't had an international mystery phone call guest yet, and this is it. I think this this <laughs> will fall into that category, I think, right? Yes, I think it will. Awesome. So our theme today is the body reveals man. What does it mean to be a human person made in the image and likeness of God, uh, to be created to manifest God's love in the world? I know it's kind of a heavy theological question, but I know you're up to the task and uh, you're right yeah, next yeah, to Rome. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? What does it mean? Well, it means that you follow what God created you for. We are put here to promote the word. So we're supposed to become an image of God for others to see, right? So that's that's where, you know, how we present ourselves. That's what this is about. And we, 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 have, to, we have to try to become holy in order to make other people become holy. I mean, it's the it's the saying that you cannot give what you do not have, right? Hmm. So, our, 
So what, what does it mean? You know, it means to become uh, an image of God, I guess. I mean, what, what you're saying is that since we are made in the image and likeness of God, we're almost called to reflect who God is as Christians sure. uh, to one another. Sure, we need to live up to that image that we're created in. Ah. And, and the thing is, I think that's our problem. You know, we don't as people first and foremost live up to the image as well as we should, some to greater or lesser degree. And I think to the degree that we do live up to that image that we're created in, the more the, the more we attract, people see who we are. And they, they, they see, hopefully they see God in us. And, they, and I think that's what heaven is all about, where we will see people through the prism of God. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. I like that you said we need to live up to the image. It's it's almost like what I said in the beginning. We're created to manifest God's love in the world, sure. you know, through one another. It's much simpler than it, it appears, right? I mean, we're, you know, God has created us uh, to be in union with him, and he, he created us perfectly uh, in his image, which is really beautiful. Exactly. exactly. You know? And our fallen nature pulls us more and more away from that. And it, 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 it hides that. It's something that we have to seek. We have to, you know, obviously have to overcome the effects of original sin, and and the and and of course, and then and then deliberate sin beyond that. Yeah. You know, we I think I think some people seem to we, we seem to look at original sin we like as if we're victims. Okay, well, to some degree, I guess we are, but that doesn't. You know that doesn't uh, mitigate the reality that we're we are imperfect and need to strive towards perfection. Yeah, Amen. Well, this is great. I mean, thank you so much. I don't want to keep you much longer since I'm speaking to someone in Germany, across the pond yeah, there. there. But uh, when you get back, let's get together, huh? Let's get together for one lunch, and oh. we'll kind of catch up. And there's a lot yeah. of stuff we have to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And then we'll, we'll call you when we're back in town, maybe in a week or so. Okay. All right. Peace. Thank you. God bless. God bless you. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, so today's guest is Dr. Peter Kraft. I cannot express the excitement I have to have this conversation with him today. He is an amazing philosopher and teaches philosophy at Boston College. He's a convert to the Catholic Church. He has written over 95 books on Christian philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Some of these books include Handbook of Christian Apologetics, Christianity for Modern Pagans, Fundamentals of Faith, The Philosophy of Jesus, The Wisdom of Christ. I mean, this man is absolutely prolific. I think he's one of the major teachers of our Catholic Church today in the modern world. I'm super pumped to talk with him. You can tell my excitement, Dr. Peter Kraft. Well, listen, first of all, thank you so much for uh, for agreeing to do this. And uh, I'm very excited to uh, share the faith with you and, uh, you know, talk to you a bit. So I wanted to start out for our listeners. Tell me a little bit about your background, and and you were a convert. What uh, you know? What was what were you born into as far as religion, and what drew you to the Catholic Church? Okay, I was born into uh, a very loving and wise family. I'm an only child. <clears throat> it was the Reformed Church in America, a division of uh, uh, Calvinism. Actually, I was never that staunch a Calvinist. I remember trying to read Calvin and being a bit bored, uh, but I had no problems with my faith. It was it was evangelical. It was it was Christ centered. It was honest. It was it was holy. Uh, at Calvin College, I began to fall in love with things Catholic, uh, and I was taught that this is the whore of Babylon and very dangerous. So I wanted to get the temptation out of my system. 
So I started reading the Church Fathers to prove to myself that how Protestant they were and that the Catholics were the new kids on the block that had invented a, a new and corrupt church in the Middle Ages. And uh, if you know anything about Newman's conversion, you know the rest of the story. Mm. So there must have been some point in your conversion that you even grew deeper in your love for Christ and for God and his church. There must have been a falling in love component in, yep. in that. Maybe you could explain a little bit of that. That's a very good question. Um, the two developments in my conversion, one the intellectual uh, and facts and argument seeking, and the other the unconscious, the love of beauty and, and sanctity, I think met when I read an essay by Etienne Gilson, the great Thomist scholar. By the way, I became a Thomist as a philosopher long before I became a Catholic. Thomas is simply brilliant. It was a chapter entitled in The Intelligence in the Service of Christ the King. Sure, yeah. And the sentence was, Thomas Aquinas makes it possible for your thought to be one with your prayer. Hmm. I said, that's what I need. Wow. When you said you part of your journey was to read the Church Fathers and, and you discovered that, I'm sure in the writings, and I, I read some of the Church Fathers, is that, you know, the Eucharist it was alive and mm -hmm. present right from the get-go, which is very mm -hmm. surprising to Protestants. And, and yes. uh, so you being a Calvinist, that had to be the trajectory for you, the beginning of your trajectory into, uh, you know, becoming a Catholic. Yep. What was that moment of like light bulb? Well, of all the distinctively Catholic doctrines that most Protestants don't believe, the real presence was the most important one to right, me. Right, right. Because that's Christ himself. That's right. Uh, any evangelical has to say, where Christ is, I want to be. Yeah. And if that's not Christ, if Catholics are wrong, and that's only a sacred symbol, then the Holy Spirit fell asleep for 1,500 years and let the church commit horrible idolatry, ridiculous idolatry, right. until Luther and Calvin woke them up, and that was simply unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Now, I realized at the time that Anglicans and many Episcopalians and Lutherans also believed in some version of the real presence, and their version versus the Catholic version, though an important difference, was not the essential difference. The essential difference was have most or all Christians throughout history been committing this ridiculous mistake or not. If not, then most Protestants are simply wrong and I'm in the wrong church. So I know that you're very well known for your works on apologetics and your defense of the faith. And a number of your books are structured like dialogues. And I just became aware of this. Like, for example, the uh, unaborted Socrates and Socrates meets Jesus mm -hmm. and, and between heaven and hell. And you yep. have this new one now on the Eucharist. So why did you begin to write books in that way as a dialogue? Because I fell in love with the prophet that uh, God deposited among the pagans, namely St. Socrates. Mm. Not the Eastern Orthodox Saint, Christian St. Socrates, but the historical Socrates. I fell in love with Socratic dialogue and with Plato, who is the very best way to introduce students to philosophy. So I kept wondering why other philosophers hadn't written Socratic dialogues. Here, Plato wrote 30 of them, and many of them are masterpieces. So I gave an assignment to my students, write a Socratic dialogue on any of these arguable topics. And they did a great job, and they enjoyed doing it, and I enjoyed reading it. And mm. I said, well, if my students can do it, why can't I? <laughs> so I started writing them, and they worked. Yeah. So I've written over a dozen of them. That's great. Uh, I have that kind of a mind, as, as you do, that simply wants to know and give reasons. It's not that I'm in love with logic or certainly calculation. 
uh, much more intuitive, but I've got to have reasons. Mm -hmm. And I respect other people's demand for reasons. I would much rather dialogue with an honest, intelligent atheist than a a, a lazy Christian. Mm. Uh, when I was in Japan studying Zen Buddhism, uh, one of the Zen masters, after a little bit of interview, said, uh, I will not do what you asked me to do, Professor Crave, teach you techniques of Zen meditation, because uh, it wouldn't do you any good. You'd never become enlightened. I said, why not? He said, because I know who your favorite philosopher is. At this time, I had not published any books yet, so he had no way of knowing. I said, who? He said, Socrates, isn't it? I said, yes, how did you know that? <laughs> he said, just after a half hour's talking with you, I know that your mind is split into two halves like a Socratic dialogue, and each half demands answers from the other half. Wow. And that's fine for a philosopher, but you'll never become enlightened. That's cool. I said, thank you. That was an insight. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's kind of uh, entertaining, the approach. Well, it's, re it's, it's the same reason sports are interesting. That's right. Uh, that's it, right. It's a war. It's a drama. Right. Exactly. You don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. Yeah. Um, each one of our podcasts has a theme. The, our theme for today is The Body Reveals Man. And uh, this theme is from St. John Paul's Theology of the Body, emphasizing mm -hmm. how our body is truly us and we are the body and soul in unity. Can you give me your comments regarding that? Uh, yes. There's a very good book by Chesterton, who I think is one of the greatest geniuses who ever lived, on Thomas Aquinas, called St. Thomas Aquinas the Dumb Ox. And he argues that Aquinas restored the Christian view of the body and matter and nature and, and the natural uh, over against the, the necessary counterweight that his predecessors provided, uh, the priority of the soul, which is also true. But paganism had taken something good that God had created, namely the human body, and, and virtually worshipped it. And that had to be undone. And that took centuries, uh, a kind of purgatory. We also call it the Dark Ages. And then when Christian civilization emerged out of that Dark Ages, you get a new humanism, a new appreciation of nature and of matter and of the human body. And that's especially true of Aquinas. The, the basic principle uh, in Aquinas' theology uh, is not just a reconciliation of the supernatural and the natural, but the fact that grace, divine grace, the supernatural, always perfects the natural. Hmm. Uh, faith perfects reason, uh, agape perfects the natural loves, and the soul perfects the body. They're hmm. not aliens or enemies, they're, they're friends. And therefore, the image of God is, as John Paul uh, so brilliantly shows, in the body as well as in the soul. Hmm. Gender yeah. is, a, is a kind of icon of, of Trinitarian love. Hmm. In our culture today, it seems that people do not identify their body with them, you know? In fact, yep. it seems that they are, they see it as something that they possess or yep. they can use and manipulate. I mean, yep. uh, do you agree with this observation? And where do you think some areas of our culture, where do you think is especially evident? I think that's profoundly true, and John Paul shows us that. Uh, we have a tendency to think that we're much too materialistic. In a sense, that's the opposite of the truth. We're Gnostics. We're spiritualists. We see our body and the whole material world as a possession to manipulate. And Descartes is, is probably the villain here. He had good intentions, I'm sure, but his notion that uh, matter and spirit are two clear and distinct ideas that have nothing in common that matter occupies space and can't think, and spirit thinks and doesn't occupy space, that's lodged in our consciousness so strongly after Descartes 
that it's almost impossible for us to work our way backward into a much more sacramental view. Uh, the Aristotelian and Thomistic idea that the body and soul are related as two dimensions of one thing rather than two things, the, the form and the matter. Uh, so that is a key theological point and psychological point, seeing our bodies as ourselves, not our exclusive selves versus the soul, and not even as the instrument of the soul, but as the, the expression of the soul. Yeah, The body is the soul in a material form, just as, as love is gravity spiritualized, or gravity is the, uh, the body of love. They're, they're one thing in two dimensions. It, uh, it's beautiful. Do, do you see it as a connection in some way that we're made in the image and likeness of God? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, God is love, and love always perfects the beloved. I'm going to switch gears a little bit with you. Um, what do you think that we can do, you and I and, and everyone that's listening, to strengthen our church today? As we know, our church is suffering, and you know we have to really work hard at showing the importance and drawing people back to the church. What can we do? On the individual level, the answer is very simple and very clear and not at all original. Be a saint. Saints convert the world. Mm -hmm. Saints are spiritual sons that that draw all the matter in the solar system to circulate around them. Ten more Mother Teresas would reconvert the world. Mm. So your answer is to become Mother Teresa? Yep. <laughs> Her vocation is different than, than the other saints. Uh, easier said uh, than done, uh, Pete. But Mother, Mother, Mother Teresa, <laughs> now you have to carefully theologize this, Mother Teresa is, is Christ himself. Mm. St. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. It's even beyond just the imitation of Christ. It's the very life of Christ in you. And the more you let that in, uh, the more it comes out and the more it converts the world. It's incredibly simple. Simple to understand, very difficult to do. Mm. So, I mean, it sort of leads me to my next question. How can we change our culture uh, to be drawn toward God and to recognize that God is real in a culture where uh, God is denied, per se? And essentially, it's uh, being an example is what you kind of just said and, and being the, uh, the closest that we can become to Christ-like. Is that sort of what you're saying there? Yes, but that's secondary. That flows from something more primary and more fundamental. Uh, how did Jesus do it? How did he influence so many people? I think the secret is in what is beyond words. He spent nights in prayer. He abruptly left his ministry mm. uh, to become one with his father. He plugged into the infinite source of spiritual energy, and then everything else took care of itself. So if there's a single word, the answer is prayer. Oh, yeah, I think that is the single word, right? Yeah, and that's not a technique. That's a desire. You pray, first of all, with your heart. Even discernment follows that. When the, his critics ask Jesus, how can we understand your words? We don't understand your teaching. And you say it comes from God whom you call your father. We can't believe that. Uh, he answered, if your will were to do the will of my father, you would understand my teaching and that it comes from him. Hmm, that's beautiful. So that's a good prayer for all of us, right? To pray for our culture yep. to fall in love with Christ, to fall in love with yes. his church. I think that's yes. something we could do daily. That's awesome. Uh, Peter, Dr. Peter Crave, thank you so much. It's been a joy uh, sharing this time with you. It's been a joy in fellowship with you and being inspired by just listening to you talk. And uh, uh, it was a pleasure for me to spend this time with you. And that's reciprocated on my part. God bless your work. God bless you, Peter. God bless. 
Wow, that was a really fun interview. I hope you learned a lot. I certainly did. You know, I want to take a moment and just share with you something that's on my heart, something that's personally affecting me. These are certainly unique and unsettling times. So many of us are worried about the future of our nation, our church, even our families. The stress and the anxiety levels are at an all-time high. And, and how do we handle this? I have come to understand we are really not in control. And we just need to surrender it. The fact of surrendering control can be in itself stressful because we need to trust in something, right? And what is that something? Well, you can guess what I'm about to say. We have to hand it over to God. We just have to trust Him. And I have to say, it isn't easy. But at this time, we need to learn or strengthen our trust in God. To give these emotions we are feeling to God. Ask God to take it. I mean, what else can we do? Maybe we're just not accustomed to completely trusting in God, really giving everything to Him. But if we don't, these feelings can become totally overwhelming to the point that it can make us sick and eventually we can be overcome by fear. We may be being forced to recognize that this is the way God is using this time to draw us closer to Him. It's hard. I mean, it's not easy to say, okay, I trust, and then believe it, right? It's like falling backwards with your eyes closed and expecting someone to catch you. But we have to think of it as a new virtue. Through discipline and repetitiveness, it can become a new normal. We need to make this a deliberate and intentional act. Trust is like a new attitude, a new behavior. Trust is positive. And this belief that God is in control will give us peace. It's like when Jesus asked Sister Faustina to teach us all to pray this specific prayer during her apparition with him. It was very simple. Jesus, I trust in you. Now I'm going to give you a little technique on how to do this, okay? Are you ready? Here goes. Just do it. Come on, say it with me. Jesus, I trust in you. Trust me, you'll be better for it. Well, I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to trust God. You know what I mean, right? So we talked about a lot of stuff in this podcast, and you might have some questions on the teachings of the Catholic Church or concerns about the Catholic Church or your faith or anything that you might have heard today. We want to hear from you. Send us an email to podcast at arrayofhope.net, and Dr. David Heideck will respond in an upcoming podcast and try to answer your questions. This podcast, by the way, is made possible by donors and supporters of Array of Hope. And you could become part of the Array of Hope family by going to our donation page on our website at arrayofhope.net. So please join us on our next podcast with an all-new theme, new guests, new surprise calls, and new discussions with Dr. David Heideck and myself. Our theme next time is going to be the domestic church. Hey, it's all about the family. And this is an important episode. Our guest is going to be Teresa Tamio. This is going to be an amazing show. You got you to check it out. It's going to be fun. And by the way, if you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe to this podcast. And also give us a favorable rating. It really helps our reach and our marketability. So listen, thanks a lot for joining us today. And remember, there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time, peace. Peace.